Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for listening. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're so happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you. And thank you for coming back to take another deep dive into crime with us. Please be sure to check out the episode description to follow me on Instagram, as well as TikTok, and using our support link to help us out over here at Crime Dive. You can also find timestamps in order to skip around as much as you would like. This episode might have a lot of timestamps. As you can tell by the title, we are going to be talking about the dynasty of the Murdoch family and their fall from grace. I'm sure you've been hearing about this case in the media. There is so much associated with this family. They're very corrupt and a member of the family has finally been caught and forced to face the consequences of their crimes. And that will be none other than Alec Murdoch. This is going to be a long episode. We have a lot to go over. I've actually split it up into two parts. The first part is going to be more of the background information as well as what led to the arrest of Alec Murdoch. And the next part will be about the trial. The trial is very extensive and it's a lot. I don't want to put all of that into one episode. So get ready guys, because there's a lot to go over. We can't start this episode without talking about who the Murdoch family is. They were a powerful family in Hampton, South Carolina, which is a pretty small town. So they were known by everybody in the community. Everybody knew their name. They were very prominent. They were high up in society. When you said the Murdoch name, there was just a certain level of prestige. And this dynasty began with none other than Randolph Murdoch Sr. And he established the PMPED law firm in 1910. The name of the law firm is just the acronyms for all of the partners. The M stood for Murdoch. Even though the M stood for Murdoch and the Murdochs were just a partner in the law firm, everybody knew this law firm as the Murdoch firm. They were the law around there. So Randolph Murdoch Sr., he became the district attorney in Hampton from 1920 to 1940, 10 years after starting the Murdoch law firm. Randolph Murdoch Jr., his son, took his place from 1940 to 1986. Then Randolph Murdoch III took his place from 1986 to 2006. Because the Murdoch men continued to succeed one another, they really became known as the dynasty. And this is why everybody called the PMPED law firm the Murdoch law firm. Alec Murdoch began working for the law firm in 1994. Now, because the Murdochs owned this law firm, they were known to exercise their power a lot in order to get themselves out of trouble. This was very common for them. I'm sure they got away with it more than we even know, but we'll be going over a lot of that. We have got to start with none other than Richard Alec Murdoch, otherwise known as Alec Murdoch. And I will be referring to him as Alec Murdoch for the remainder of the episode. Now there's been a lot of confusion on how to pronounce Alec's name. I know I was definitely confused because it's spelled like Alex, but for some reason he pronounces it as Alec, almost as if there's a C at the end instead of an X. I don't know if this is them being bougie or what. Alec Murdoch was born on June 17th, 1968 in Hampton, South Carolina. His parents' names were Randolph Murdoch III and Elizabeth or Libby Alexander. He had three siblings. He had two brothers, John and Randy, and a sister named Lynn. Alec was described as being pretty hard to read, but overall a good guy, and he appeared to be a good lawyer. 
Alec attended the University of South Carolina School of Law in order to carry on the legacy of working at his family's law firm. And while he was there, he met Margaret or Maggie Branstetter, and they got married on August 14, 1993. Alec became a lawyer at his family's law firm in 1994, and him and Maggie welcomed two sons, Buster and Paul. Now, Margaret or Maggie Murdoch was born on September 15, 1968 in Nashville, Tennessee. Her parents' names were Terry and Kennedy Branstetter, and she moved to Wilmington, North Carolina, and then to Unionville, Pennsylvania. She had to relocate a lot because of her father's job, so she lived in a few different places. She had one sibling, an older sister named Marion, and Maggie was described as being sweet, a very devoted mother who lived for her kids, almost to a fault, some would say, which we'll get into, but she was known to be down to earth, and she had a dry sense of humor that people really liked. As I said, Maggie attended the University of South Carolina, where she met Alec Murdoch and they started their family soon after. And one of their sons, as I just mentioned, his name was Paul. Paul Terry Murdoch was born on April 14, 1999 in Hampton, South Carolina. Paul was described as being a bit of a troublemaker. And as early as the age of five, he was definitely stirring up trouble. Now, this has not been confirmed, but it is said that Paul used to kill and torture animals for fun at a very young age. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but more than I think three people have come out and said this about Paul, who knew him when he was a child. Now, as I said about Maggie being devoted to her kids almost to a fault, this had a lot to do with the fact that she struggled to find her voice in the family. The Murdoch family is male dominated. So Maggie being a woman, it did make it hard for her to establish her dominance, especially when it came to raising her two sons. She really struggled to discipline them sometimes because Paul and Buster, they were said to be pretty disrespectful towards adults, almost like they were a little bit entitled. They knew their family had some clout, so they did what they could to exercise it. Paul started drinking at the age of 14. And I just wanna say, I do not condone underage drinking. He would drink in excess at a very young age. And Alec and Maggie would allow him to do this at their home. They let him do whatever he wanted. And Paul's friends described him as being a very erratic and aggressive drunk. So much so that they had to come up with the name for his alter ego, the guy that he turned into when he became blackout drunk. And this name was known as Timmy. For a long time, people really didn't know much about the Murdochs. I mean, they kind of had this royal mystique to them. People didn't know a lot about their lives. They just knew who they were and how long they had been around. They had a lot of privilege, but this mystique would soon fade away. An event occurred that would start the beginning of the end for the Murdoch family. So on February 23rd, 2019, Paul was going to an oyster roast with his friends and his girlfriend. And I'm gonna name the people as well as their connections to one another to paint this picture for you. Morgan Dowdy was Paul's girlfriend. Connor Cook was Paul's friend. And Miley Altman was his friend. But Miley and Connor were dating. Anthony Cook was Paul's friend, as well as Mallory Beach being Paul's friend. Now, Anthony Cook and Connor Cook were cousins, and Mallory and Anthony were dating. So this is a pretty intertwined group. Mallory and Miley had been best friends since they were little kids. So everybody was friends or dating, and they had all known each other for majority of their lives. 
So let's talk about Mallory Beach a little bit. She was born on April 18th, 1999 in Walterboro, South Carolina. Her parents' names were Philip and Renee Beach, and she had two sisters named Morgan and Savannah. Mallory was described as being very happy and always positive, and she really loved to advocate for animal rights. Not to mention, she was a very religious young woman, and she was proud of her faith. Mallory was said to be kind to everybody she came across and she loved her friends, family, and pets more than anything. Mallory graduated from Wade Hampton High School where she played soccer and she loved soccer. She loved to be a part of a team and she was a really great team player and she always had her teammates back no matter what. Mallory previously attended the University of South Carolina and in 2019, she was working at a boutique called It's Retail Therapy. So jumping back to February 23rd, everybody decided that they were going to meet at Paul's grandfather's river house and Paul was gonna drive everyone in his father's boat so they could make it to the oyster roast. But before that, they had to go and get some alcohol. Once again, I don't condone underage drinking because at this point, everybody that I'm speaking about is underage. Paul decided to purchase alcohol from a place called Parker's Convenience Store. He was only 19, so he used his brother Buster's ID. Buster was overage and they look almost exactly alike, so this wasn't too difficult for him to do. Paul was seen on surveillance walking back to the truck with the boat hooked up on the back to show his friends that he had bought the alcohol and he held it up, very excited, almost bragging about the fact that he got the beer. After this, everybody heads to the oyster roast and Paul is driving everybody on Alex's boat, his father. Throughout the night, the young friends were posting on Snapchat. They were drinking, hanging out at the oyster roast, just having fun. Once again, I want to clarify, I do not condone underage drinking. So around midnight, they all decide to leave the Oyster Roast in Paul's boat. And Paul decides that he wants to go downtown and continue drinking. Most of them really didn't want to go. I mean, it was getting late. They were tired. They just wanted to go home. But Paul forced everybody to go because he was the one who was driving. But when Paul docked the boat and everyone got off, only him and Connor decided to head to the bar. And they went to a bar called Luther's Rare and Well Done. Miley, Morgan, Mallory, and Anthony, they were clear that they didn't want to go. So they decided to head to a playground and sit on the swings to pass the time. And there was a playground that was near the dock for them to relax and wait for Paul and Connor to come back. At Luther's Rare and Well Done, Paul and Connor are seen on surveillance at the bar taking shots. A short time later, they were seen stumbling out of the bar and they were noticeably drunk. Around 1.15, everyone met back up at the dock and they were seen on surveillance walking back toward the boat. And it was at this point that Mallory was seen for the last time. And her and Anthony shared this really sweet moment together and you can see it on their surveillance and they're just giggling and laughing with each other. Just the way they looked at each other, you can tell they had real feelings between the two of them. Now they had known each other for years since they were kids, but their dating relationship was fairly new. They had decided to take things to the next level. They'd been dating for a few months. Before everybody got on the boat, Anthony and Paul began arguing. Anthony really did not want Paul to drive because he was way too drunk and he asked him if he could drive instead. But Paul refused to hand over the keys. Paul was a very stubborn guy. He wanted things his way and he felt like he should have things his way because he was a little bit more well-known. He had a little bit more money. He definitely used the Murdoch name and wealth to get what he wanted. Now it was a very foggy night and there was low visibility on the water. Not to mention 
mention, there were no lights out there and Paul was very drunk. So this was not a good combination at all for a safe boat ride. As Paul was leaving the dock, he almost hit some nearby sailboats and everybody was just terrified. And they were just begging him to let someone else drive, but he refused. Paul's girlfriend, Morgan, decided to go up to him and she begins fighting with him, telling him, you need to hand over the keys and you need to let someone else drive. This is getting ridiculous and out of hand. And it's at this point that Paul spits on her and slaps her in front of everybody. And you know, if he's done it in front of people, he's most likely done it in private. He then stripped down to his boxers in the freezing cold and continued to drive the boat. So Paul at this point is very drunk. He's very belligerent and everybody is just desperately pleading with him to please let someone else drive, but he's refusing. In order to paint a picture of the boat, I'm going to tell you guys where everybody was sitting. Morgan, Paul's girlfriend and Miley, they were sitting in the front of the boat. Paul was in the middle at the wheel and Connor was also in the middle standing next to Paul. Anthony and Mallory were both in the back. So as Paul continues to drive, the boat heads towards Archer's Creek Bridge in Beaufort, South Carolina, when all of a sudden it just stops and they're sitting there floating there. There's no movement. It's this moment of quiet in the night. And suddenly the throttle of the boat was pushed all the way down and the boat just starts going at full speed ahead. So it goes from being at a complete stop to just shooting forward out of nowhere. And it's at this moment that Anthony decides to grab Mallory. They go down to the bottom of the boat to brace for impact. At 2.20 a.m., the boat crashed into Archer's Creek Bridge. Paul, Anthony, and Mallory were all ejected from the boat. Connor, Miley, and Morgan, they were still in the boat but they did get hurt. Anthony got out of the water and noticed that he didn't see Mallory anywhere. And he asked everyone, where's Mallory? And they were confused because he was with Mallory. He had been holding her. It was at this point that everybody realized Mallory was missing because Anthony couldn't find her. At 2.26 a.m., Connor Cook decides to call 911. And I'm gonna play that call for you here. What bridge is it? Paul, what bridge is this? Hearing that person in the back desperately screaming for Mallory is so hard to listen to. It's so sad. You just hear a young person who just desperately wants their friend to be found. And the fact that that's what they're thinking about and not their own safety really goes to show how close this friend group was. Around 2.46 a.m., emergency services and a water rescue team arrived on the scene. And Paul, Miley, Morgan, and Anthony were all described 
described as being very intoxicated. Paul was down to his boxers. As I said, he stripped in the boat for whatever reason, and he got pretty belligerent with law enforcement. And I'm sure he felt like he could do this because of who his family was. I mean, his family was the law around there. So I don't think he was too shaken up when he saw police officers. Anthony refused to go to the hospital because Mallory was still missing and they hadn't found her yet. And he was not gonna leave without her. Anthony decided to go back in the water to continue searching for her. And he was just absolutely hysterical, desperately trying to find her. And a deputy had to come and take him out of the water because Anthony was still injured and he didn't want him to get injured even more. It's at this moment that Anthony decides to call his mom. And I'm gonna play that call for you here. Mom. Y'all need to come to me for quick. We hit a bridge in the boat. Connor's f***ed up. Connor's messed up bad. We can't find Mallory. Morgan's messed up bad. We can't find Mallory. Mom, there's 50 cops here, Coast Guard, everything. We can't find Mallory. It's been 30 minutes, Mom. As you can hear in his voice, he just sounds so distraught and desperately wanting to find Mallory. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what he was feeling in that moment, just sitting there on the side of the road, hoping that his girlfriend is gonna be found safe. After Anthony gets off the phone with his mom, he sees Paul walk near him and he becomes very upset. And I'm gonna play that part for you here. Get that right there away from me. Let's let me trust. Oh, you smiling like it's funny. My girlfriend go, folks. You think it's funny? Sit down. Sit down. Sit down. Oh, he's So, in case you didn't catch any of that, Anthony believed that he saw Paul smiling as he was walking past him, and he became very, very upset. So he said, are you smiling? Are you smiling? My girlfriend's gone. He said, get that motherfucker away from me. He said, I hope you rot in fucking hell. And you can hear the deputy in the background trying to calm him down, and he's asking him to sit down, telling him to relax. I mean, Anthony was livid. It's safe to assume that at this point, their friendship is over. Anthony definitely feels like Paul was at fault. And I agree. I mean, Paul was driving drunk. He had no business being behind the wheel. They all begged and pleaded with him to not drive because something like this could potentially happen. So Anthony turns to the deputy and he tells him that Paul Murdoch is Alec Murdoch's son. And then he proceeds to say, good luck, implying that getting Paul Murdoch to be held responsible for a crime is going to be pretty hard because of who his family is. We head over to Paul and he was standing with the deputy and he asked him for a cell phone but he didn't have one. Paul asks an EMT for a cell phone and he's given one. And it's at this moment that Paul calls not his father, but his grandfather, Randolph Murdoch III. And he told him about the boat crash. But when his grandfather asks him who was driving, Paul lies and tells him that Connor Cook was driving. Now, Connor's the one who called 911. Anthony was questioned by police soon after and he was asked who was driving. And he said it was definitely Paul Murdoch. This is what 
everybody was saying because Paul was definitely the one driving. As Paul and Anthony are being questioned separately by police, a water rescue team is continuing to search for Mallory, but it was so hard because it was a very foggy night and it was very dark out. And unfortunately, they had to call off the search for the night. Eventually, Paul was taken to the hospital. And now at the hospital are Paul, Connor, Morgan, and Miley, and they're being treated for their injuries. Morgan had severe hand lacerations and she needed surgery. Connor had a severe face laceration and a broken jaw. Miley was treated for minor injuries, but Paul was so drunk that hospital staff struggled to even check him for injuries. He was just being very belligerent, very difficult, very obnoxious, and he just wasn't cooperating. Now, Paul should have been given an alcohol test at the scene, but he wasn't given one until an hour after the crash. And of course, by this point, his blood alcohol level can go down. But recall that an EMT, as well as a deputy, said at the scene that Paul was visibly very intoxicated. So police come into Paul's hospital room to question him about what happened that night. But just as he's being questioned, his grandfather, Randolph III, and his father, Alec Murdoch, walk in. So let's go back a little bit to when Alec and Randolph III were on the way to the hospital. They decided to call Connor's dad as they were headed there. And Alec told Connor's dad that Connor was driving the boat. Now, this was a bit odd to Connor's parents because if Connor went out with Paul and they took Alec's boat, Paul was the one who would drive it. I mean, it was Paul's father's boat. So why would Connor drive it? That didn't make any sense. Now, Alec claimed that he wanted this to be the story because it would be easier to get Connor out of trouble. I think in reality, he just didn't want his son to be to blame for the fact that he was driving, especially now that someone was missing. And don't you think it'd be easier to get your own family member out of trouble? Alec just didn't want Paul's name to be associated with being the one who was driving. Back at the hospital, as police were attempting to question Paul when his father and grandfather walked in, they stopped all questioning and they requested to speak to police directly because they were Paul's attorneys. While Randolph III is handling the questioning in Paul's hospital room, Alec was going through the hospital trying to find out where the rest of the victims were so he could talk to them. Now, this is very much not allowed because he's not related to any of these kids. Only family members can go in their hospital room. But Alec was desperately trying to find the kids before they spoke to police to get them to change their stories. They wanted everyone to say that Connor was driving instead of Paul. But Alec was stopped by hospital staff from doing this. Alec doing this, trying to get everybody to change their stories is exactly why Paul thought it was okay to drive drunk in the first place. Him always trying to get his son out of trouble and not face the repercussions of his actions is exactly why he did shit like this in the first place because he knew that he was gonna get away with it. He wasn't teaching his son anything by trying to get him out of trouble. You should make your kid pay for what they did or just not let them do shit like this in the first place. The next morning on February 24th, 2019, Mallory was still missing and people were very worried. Police decided to expand the search for Mallory and the whole community got involved. Anybody with a boat was helping out. They were using their personal boats to help find Mallory. And this was a small town, as I said, so it was normal for people in the area to help out. I mean, everybody knew everybody. Mallory was one of their own and they weren't gonna stop until she was found. Social media posts were made to update everybody on the search as well as organized searches to let people know which areas to concentrate on for that specific day. And Mallory's parents were so upset and they were worried for their daughter, but they loved the fact that the entire community was getting involved. But after a week of searching, 
the body of 19-year-old Mallory Beach was found on March 3rd, 2019 at 1.45 p.m. She was found by two volunteers who were helping search for her at the Broad River Boat Ramp in Beaufort, South Carolina, just five miles from where the crash first happened. Mallory's cause of death was ruled to be from blunt force trauma and drowning. This was definitely not the outcome that anybody wanted, and her family and friends could not believe that Mallory was gone. Anthony was absolutely devastated. I mean, he was holding on to her right before the boat crashed and they were ejected and he really felt guilty that he couldn't keep his grip on her. But ultimately, there's nothing Anthony could have done. The speed that the boat was going and the force at which it hit the bridge, it was impossible for him to hold on to her. I mean, he himself was ejected from the boat. I think at that point, the only thing that could have prevented a crash would have been Paul not driving in the first place. Mallory's funeral was held on March 7th at Open Arms Fellowship Church in Hampton, South Carolina, and over 500 people came to pay their respects. It's very sad that this young girl passed away under such negligent circumstances, especially when everybody was begging and pleading for Paul to just let someone else drive. And the fact that he was being so selfish and so difficult and it resulted in someone's death is just heartbreaking. Now that Mallory has been found unfortunately deceased, Paul is facing even more legal troubles. On April 18th, 2019, what would have been Mallory's 20th birthday, Paul was indicted on three counts of boating under the influence. His charges included causing death and great bodily injury, and this is a felony and carries a maximum sentence of 25 years in prison. On May 6th, 2019, during a hearing at the Buford County Courthouse, Paul pled not guilty. And of course, he was being given special privileges by the court. First, of all, he didn't have to wear an orange jail jumpsuit, which wasn't surprising. And he had his mugshot taken in the hallway very quickly right before the hearing. It was almost like they did it like it was a formality. As everyone expected, Paul was released on bond. And just a short few days or a week later, he was seen on video partying and drinking after his indictment. And he faced no consequences for this at all. It was public knowledge, not to mention the fact that he is underage and no one cared. The courts weren't doing anything about it. Now you would think that Paul would have felt so guilty that he would have slowed down on his drinking because it was his excessive drinking that caused the crash and the death of one of his closest friends. But no, he just continued drinking and partying as if nothing had happened. So because the courts didn't seem to be handling this in the most efficient way, Mallory's family decided to hire an attorney named Mark Tinsley and he filed a 10 million dollar wrongful death suit on the family's behalf. And they sued anybody who they felt was responsible for Mallory's death, including the bar that Paul was drinking at that night, Luther's Rare and Well Done, because they were selling alcohol to a minor, the liquor store where Paul had bought the alcohol from before the oyster roast, and they were suing Alec Murdoch, Paul's father. Alec owned the boat that was ultimately involved in the crash, and he allowed Paul to drive it, knowing that he was going to be drinking. Not to mention he allowed Paul to drink underage all the time. So Mallory's family filed the $10 million wrongful death suit and they wanted this money. But 
Alec told Mark Tinsley, the family's attorney, that he was broke. Now this makes no sense at all because the entire Murdoch family was worth a lot of money. I mean, it was, we're talking years and years of generational wealth. So it doesn't really make sense that he would be broke when you have three properties, a boat, cars. Mark Tinsley obviously felt the same way because he knew that Alec was full of shit. So he decides to file a motion to compel where Alec would have to prove that he was actually broke in order to not have to pay the entirety of this $10 million settlement. In order to prove that he was broke, Alec would have to turn over his financial records. The hearing for this was set on June 10th, 2021. Paul also had a court appearance set for his charges and his charges were surrounding Mallory Beach's death. This was set to take place at the Buford County Courthouse, but Paul would never make this court date and Alec would never make his because something that nobody expected happened. On the night of June 7th, 2021 at 10.07 p.m., Alec Murdoch called 911 from his property called Moselle. And we're gonna play that call for you here. Okay, you said 4147 Moselle Road in Allison? Sir? You said 4147 Moselle Road in Allison? Yes, sir. 4147 Moselle Road. Stay on the line with me, okay? Yes, sir. Stay on the line with me, okay? County County Communication. Collins, I have an Alex Murdoch on the line calling from 4147 Moselle Road. He's advising that his wife and child was shot. I've been up to it now. It's bad. Okay. Okay, and are they breathing? No, ma'am. Okay, and you said it's your wife and your son? My wife and my son. Are they in a vehicle? No, ma'am, they're on the ground out at my kennel. Okay, did you see anyone? Okay, is he breathing at all? No, no, I she? Okay, do you see anything? Do you see anyone in the area? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Okay, and what is your name? My name is Alex Murdoch. Okay, did you hear anything or did you come home and find them? No, ma'am. I've been gone. I, I just came back. <laughs> Please hurry. We're getting somebody out there to you. Oh. And please hurry. We're getting somebody out there to you. Me asking you these questions don't slow them down, okay? And you sure they're not breathing? Is he moving at all, your son? I know you said that she was shot, but what about your son? <laughs> Nobody. They're not. Neither one of them's moving. And does anything look out of place? Not, not particularly, really. No, ma'am. Okay. Okay. I don't want you to touch them at all, okay? I don't, I don't know if you've already touched them, but I don't, I don't want you to touch them just in case they can get any kind of evidence, okay? I, I already touched them trying to get a, um, to see if they were breathing. 
Okay. Well, I, I just don't want you to move anything just in case they can get any oh kind of God, evidence, okay? In case you didn't catch any of that, Alec called 911 and said that he came home to find that his wife and son were shot badly. And it was revealed that Paul was shot in the doorway of the dog kennels on their property. And Maggie was found shot about 15 feet away from them. Now, a little bit about this property. It was huge. It was 1,700 acres. And Alec bought this property in 2012. It was on 4147 Moselle Road. Everyone around town, including them, just called it Moselle. And it was located in the low country of South Carolina, which is a very rural area. And Moselle was very secluded. It was away from everybody, very remote. It was once a place where the Murdochs always hosted really big parties. They would have the mayor, police officers, a lot of rich, prominent people. And now it was the scene of a horrible crime. Police arrived around 10.25 p.m. and Sergeant Daniel Green is the first to arrive. And I'm gonna play some audio from the body cam footage. Central Sub 117 is secured. Got a Whiskey Fox, Whiskey Mike, both gunshot wounds to the head. Sir, I want you to let you know because of the scene, I do, I did go get a gun and bring okay. it down here. It's in your vehicle. I just you have any guns on you at all? Leading, no, sir. It's leaning up okay. against the side of my car. Okay. You're, you're fine, man. You're fine. Turn around for me. I don't have any. Gun. Okay. Yes, sir. I see that. Okay. This is your wife and son. And son. Okay. This is the firearm you brought from inside the house? Sir, yes, sir. I went get this is a long story. My son was in a boat wreck of months back. He's been getting threats. Most of it's been benign stuff we didn't take serious. Okay. Um, you know, he he's been getting like punched. Um I know that's somebody I know that's what it is. Okay. When did you get home? Right, um, right when you called or did you go to the house first? Where is the house? I came to the house first. My mom has late stages Alzheimer's and my dad is in the hospital. Okay. I left. I don't know what time. I can go back on my phone and tell you the exact times. Did you check? Okay. Did I check what? Did you check them? The, the, we got medical guys that are, that, that's, that's, that's what they're going to do, okay? Uh, what are they doing? Can they hurry? They are. Yes, sir. That, that gentleman that was out here already, he's one of the battalion chiefs, okay? How did you pull up you, from back there? I went to the house and they weren't home, which was odd. I tried to call. Okay. And then I knew they had been down here before I left to go to my mom's. Okay. And so I, that is loaded. Okay. Um, you might want to unload it. But I, they are dead, aren't they? Yeah, yes, sir. That's what it, that's what it looks like. <laughs> When was the last time you were here with them or talked to them or anything like that? Um, it was earlier tonight. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the exact time, but okay. I left. I was probably gone an hour and a half from my mom's and I saw them about 45 minutes before that. Okay. I rode around with Paul for two hours this afternoon in the, in the pickup truck. That's your son, Paul? Okay. Somebody going to check them? Yes, sir. They, they've already checked them. <laughs> they did check them? Yes, sir. It's official that they're dead? Yes, sir. That's what it looks like. <laughs> mm. I'm sorry. No, no. You're fine. <laughs> I, 
Uh, I'm very sorry. <laughs> Gotta call her parents. What, what's, what's her name? Her name is Maggie Murdoch. Margaret Brandstetter Murdoch. And what's your son's first name? You said Paul? Paul Gary Murdoch. All right, so let's go over this. So Alec first says that he went to go get his gun when he saw that his wife and son had been shot. I'm assuming just in case whoever did it was still there. And almost immediately, before he even asks how Paul and Maggie are doing, he starts explaining a story as to why he thinks they were shot. He goes straight into talking about the boat crash that Paul was involved in and caused and believed that Paul and Maggie were killed as payback for Mallory Beach's death. And he goes on to say that they've been getting threats ever since her death and that Paul had been getting punched. He didn't really elaborate too much on that. He kind of just said it. it. Sounded very odd. It was just weird how we tried to give a story and an explanation before anyone asked. He said, oh, it's such a long story. And he flat out says, I know that's what it is. Like he knows why they got shot. Well, you shouldn't even be thinking about that right now. You should be thinking about, are they okay? It was almost as if he already knew they weren't. He claimed that he was visiting his mother that night and he wasn't there when Paul and Maggie got shot. He said he returned and found that they were lying in the kennels. Now, at the moment where he asked Sergeant Green if Paul and Maggie were okay and Sergeant tells them it appears that they have died, Alex's reaction was just a bit odd. He didn't seem shocked. And I know everyone takes this kind of thing differently. Everybody grieves differently. It is hard to judge because you don't know what you would do in the situation, but he just seemed oddly calm, especially after having seen them. And he was the one that found them. I don't know. It just, he just didn't seem to be that shocked. And one thing I noticed was that the sergeant didn't appear to really comfort him in any way. Almost as if he knew from the beginning that there was something off. He didn't break the news to him harshly, but he wasn't very comforting. He didn't seem like he was trying to console him in any way. Oftentimes, cops are a bit hardened because they do this on a daily basis. It's literally their job. So you could argue that point, but you could also argue that maybe he felt something was off from Alec in the beginning. Maybe he saw that he wasn't very genuine and didn't really want to comfort him. Although at this point, we didn't know who killed Paul and Maggie, we did know that they were gone. Paul was only 22 years old and Maggie was 52. The South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, otherwise known as SLED, which is what we will be referring to them as for the remainder of the episode, they arrived on the scene and they were crime scene specialists that were going to start processing and investigating. They found that Paul was shot twice with a 12 gauge shotgun, once in the chest and once through the shoulder and the bullet exited through his head. And it was the second shot that was fatal. Maggie was shot five times with a semi-automatic rifle and two of those shots hit her in the head. Both Paul and Maggie were said to be shot at close range. Investigators found that two different guns were used to kill both of them, but these guns couldn't be found. Lead sled investigator, special agent David Owen went into his car to ask Alec some questions while they were on the scene. It was raining outside, so they decided to question him in there. Alec was being questioned by special agent Owen as his lawyer sat in the back seat. And I'm gonna play a little bit of audio of Alec explaining the events of the day that ultimately led up to him finding Paul and Maggie in the dog kennels. 
what was their schedule today? When did they get home? My son works for my brother, and he was coming home to deal with the sunflowers. Um, uh, he got here. Uh, he got here pretty early because he and I rode around looking at everything for a good little while, probably 45 minutes to an hour. Um, Maggie had things she did in Charleston, and um, she had a doctor's appointment in Charleston. And she got back here. It was fairly late. Was it dark yet when Paul got home? No, Paul got home early. Early, okay. So before dinner time? Or oh, yes, ma'am. Lunch time? No, ma'am. <laughs> Was it unusual for Maggie to feed the dogs this time of night or check on them? Oh, no. I mean, she played with those dogs every, all the time. And it's especially common for her to, you know, she's been gone for a while mm -hmm. to come and let especially two of them out to run. Okay, so she pretty regularly comes out here in the evenings? Very regularly. Okay. She comes out here a lot. Just start the top, take your time. Um, like when I came back here, mm -hmm. I mean, I pulled up and I could see them. And, you know, I knew something was bad. I ran out. I knew it was really bad. <laughs> my, my boy over there, I could see it was... I could see his brain on his <laughs> And I ran over to Maggie. And uh, actually, I think I tried to turn Paul over first. Um, uh, you know, I tried to turn him over. And uh, I don't know. I figured it out. Um. Uh, his cell phone popped out of his pocket. I started to try to do something with it, thinking maybe, but then I put it back down really quickly. Um, then I went to my wife, and I, I mean, I could see. Mm -hmm. Did you touch Maggie at all? I did. I touched them both. Okay. I tried to take. I mean, I try to do it as limited as possible, mm -hmm. but I, I try to take their pulse on both of them. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I called 911 um, pretty much right away, and she was very good. Um, I talked to her. Um, I told her I was going to get off the phone to call some family members. <coughs> I did that, um, and, um, How many family members did you call him? I called my brother Randy, and I called my brother John, and I tried to call a little boy, real good friend that's right around the corner from here, but I didn't get him. Okay. What all was around, um, Paul when you walked up? Blood. Any, any other, anything else? 
I mean, there were some body mm-hmm. things, yes, sir. I mean, like any other evidence. I know you said the phone fell out the pocket, um, but did you see anything else that didn't belong or shouldn't belong or that wasn't part of Paul? Mm, no, sir. Not, no, not, the, no, sir. How about Maggie? No, sir. You didn't see anything around them? What made you come out here tonight? Um, I went to my mom's a late stage Alzheimer's patient. My dad's in the hospital. Um, my mom gets anxious when she does. I went to check on them and Maggie. Maggie's a dog lover and she fools with the dogs. And I knew she'd gone to the kennel. I was at the house. I left the house and went to my mom's for just a little while. Tried to call her when I left. Texted her, no response. Um, when I got back to the house, the house was obviously nobody was in there. So I figured they're still up here fooling around. I came back up here and I drove up and saw. So this was what happened that day, according to Alec. Just to sum it up in case you didn't catch some of it, he spent some time riding around the Moselle property with Paul that afternoon for about 45 minutes to an hour. Maggie had a doctor's appointment in Charleston, which was about an hour and a half away from where they lived in Hampton County. Now, Paul worked for John Marvin, which was Alec's brother, and he returned to Moselle after he was done working for him. Maggie arrived at Moselle in the evening around dinner time, and they all ate together. After dinner, Maggie and Paul went outside to check the hunting dog kennels. Alex said that Maggie loved the dogs. She loved going out there to play with them and check on them. So while her and Paul did that, Alec decided to stay in the house and watch TV before falling asleep on the couch. And he said he was asleep for about 25 to 30 minutes. He woke up a little after 9 p.m. and decided to visit his mother who lived in Alameda, which is about 20 minutes away from where he lived at Moselle. And he goes on to say that his mother Libby has dementia and his father was sick in the hospital with cancer. So Alec wanted to go check on her and make sure she was okay because she's known to get pretty anxious. And then he goes on to say that he tried to call Maggie right after he woke up, but she didn't answer. And he said that he called her because she said that she may have wanted to go with him. But when she didn't answer, he didn't think too much of it because she didn't normally go with him and he knew that she would just get back with him. But before he left, he decided to text her and he said he texted her at 9.08 p.m. telling her that he was going to check on his mom and that he would be right back. When he went to his mom's, he tried to call Maggie again on the way there but she still didn't answer. And he thought it was a bit odd that she wasn't getting back to him. So Alec goes to his mother's house and he stays for a little while and he leaves. He texted Maggie at 9.47 p.m. on his way home because she still hadn't answered and she never responded to any of his texts or calls. Alec said he returned home around 10 p.m. to where he found that the house was empty. Now this was a bit odd because it was a little bit later and Paul and Maggie were still not in the house. So Alec just assumed that they may still be at the dog kennels. So he drove to the dog kennels to find them. And it was here that when he got to the dog kennels, he found Paul and Maggie's bodies. Alec said he tried to turn Paul over first to check his pulse, but when he did this, Paul's phone fell out of his pocket. Now he mentioned that earlier to Sergeant Green, but he says to Special Agent Owen that when Paul's phone fell out of his pocket, he tried to mess with it or do something with it, and then he just put it down, which 
I don't know what you would have been doing with his phone. Why was that your concern when you're literally seeing his body on the ground? Alex says he also touched Maggie to take her pulse and that he tried to not touch either of them too much because he didn't want to affect any evidence that may have been found. Maggie's phone was not found at the scene. This was later revealed and Alec did not tell them this. This is what investigators found after searching. In certain parts of the story, Alec gets very emotional and people question just how genuine his emotions were. A lot of people felt like he was putting on a bit of a performance because if you watch the body cam footage, he doesn't really have any tears. He's kind of just making noises and but he doesn't really look like he's crying. There's really no tears. Agent Owen then goes on to ask Alec what his relationship with Paul and Maggie was like. And he said that it was as good as ever and that things were going very well between them. But y'all don't even know the half of what he was really leaving out. But we'll discuss that later on. Agent Owen then asks if the family was having any problems with other people, as well as any trespassers coming on the property. To which Alec says there were no trespassers, but Paul has been getting threats about the drunk driving incident that occurred that resulted in Mallory Beach's death. So he once again brings up the story about why he thinks Paul and Maggie may have been killed. And it seems like he's really trying to make this the story, almost as if to divert attention from any other possibilities. He really wants investigators to know that Paul and Maggie were most likely killed because of Mallory Beach's death. The following morning on June 8th, 2021, word had gotten out about Paul and Maggie's murders. And this was a very small town and a pretty prominent family. So word traveled very, very fast. And people were so shocked that something like this could happen to a family like the Murdoch's. But investigators, they couldn't focus on the rumors. They wanted to focus on the evidence. So they were back at the scene the following morning and they began investigating the property and they found 27 guns. The Murdoch's had a gun room where they housed their guns for hunting. And this was normal for residents in the area in the low country. Hunting was very normal and it was normal to have a few guns, but they had 27 a lot of guns. Sled investigators continue searching the house with the help of Alex's lawyers. Now this is very odd. Lawyers are not known to assist in the search of a crime scene, especially because they are tied to a potential suspect. Now up to this point, Alec was not a suspect, but he is the spouse of one of the deceased victims. And usually the spouse is the first person that investigators look at to rule out. But Alec had not been ruled out yet. So his lawyer should not have been able to search anything. Not to mention, Alec's friends were also there. Now, they weren't helping in the search, but they were literally just sitting, hanging out with the cops. They weren't being told, hey, get the hell off the property. This is a crime scene. This really reminded me of the John Bonet Ramsey case. If you haven't listened to my episode about that case, go check it out. It's actually my first episode. While John Bonet was missing, the Ramseys were allowed to invite all of these friends and all of these people over to their home, which was an active crime scene. And they were completely contaminating any evidence that could have been found in the home. And it seems like a common theme that high society people with a lot of money, probably some pretty generous donors, they were able to get away with things that most people couldn't. You should not be allowed to have a bunch of your friends over in an active crime scene. Alec was allowed to have his friends in here like it was nothing. But at the end of the day, a crime scene is a crime scene and they should all be treated the same. So when I heard that Alec Murdoch was allowed to do this, it really did remind me of the Ramses because they were also very high society people with a lot of money. 
So as SLED continues to search the house, they found shell casings on the steps outside of the home, and they collected this for evidence and hoped that it could lead them to potentially find the murder weapon. The survivors of Paul's boat crash were also questioned because Alec had posed the theory that Paul and Maggie may have been killed because of Mallory Beach's death. So they were questioned about their whereabouts the night of June 7th, and they all had solid alibis and were subsequently ruled out. On June 10th, 2021, three days after the murders, Special Agent David Owen decided to question Alec again about the night of the murders. Now, if you recall, June 10th was supposed to be the day of the first wrongful death suit hearing in the interest of Mallory Beach, where Alec was going to have to turn over his financial records. Alec was given a pass and it was postponed because they wanted to give him time to grieve. So Special Agent Owen meets up with Alec again that afternoon for more questioning. This time, he asks him to just recount the day again in greater detail. And Alec brought up the wrongful death suit hearing that was set to take place that day. Now, Alec's story stayed consistent for the most part. He fell asleep after dinner while Paul and Maggie went to the dog kennels. Then he woke up, visited his mom, and came back to find their bodies. But there were a few very important details that he mentioned for the first time. And I'm gonna play a little bit of that here. Y'all will just have to look. I, I don't. I'm not sure if I called Paul. Well, and, and that and that's why we're getting the phone so we can nail down the times and right. and, and everything. So um, I left, I drove. Uh, well, you know, I'm gonna tell y'all this, even though I think it's kind of crazy. You know, I was certain that I heard them pull up. I mean, I was positive that I heard. And and people don't just come out there. You know, we don't get like pass through. I was certain that I heard them pull up, but I, but they didn't. Okay. Um, well, if you, if you heard something pull up, what did it sound like? You know, I, I, I don't, I can't tell you what it sounded like. I just know that I thought they, I thought that, that my wife had pulled up or I mean, that Paul it, had pulled up. Would it, would it have been the buggy that she normally drives or would it be a car? No, no, I, I, I had the impression that a, that a, a car pulled up, Okay. you know? And, and had you woken up by that time, but hadn't left for your mom's? Yep. Okay. And, and, but it wasn't much time in between there because mm -hmm. I left pretty damn close. It wasn't much time between me waking up and me leaving the house. Okay. Um, and when I went outside, you know, There, there's a cat, a wild cat that lives around that house. Okay. I'm pretty sure it was the cat that ran okay. from my car, but you know, I never had the impression it was a person, but there was something, Okay. you know? But I really don't think, you know, I'm just throwing that yeah, out no, there no, because it was in my mind. Yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, that's totally fine. So Alec drops a piece of information that investigators had never heard because he didn't reveal this the night of the murders, just three days earlier. And what he says is he was certain, not probably certain, that he heard a car driving up to Moselle after he woke up from his nap. He said that he assumed that it was just Maggie pulling up, but... It wasn't because they were still down at the kennels when he left. When he went outside to leave to go to his mother's house, he didn't see them there. 
So did he see a car at all or what? It was like he didn't really finish that story, but he said he was certain that he heard a car pull up. And I understand when things are happening and there's the heat of the moment, he had first been questioned about Paul and Maggie's murders after he had found them. Sometimes you don't remember everything right away. Things will come to you a few days later once you've calmed down a little bit. But if you were certain that this happened, why would you not mention it that night? And he seemed pretty calm when he was in the car being questioned by investigators. He seemed to remember a lot of things. So how did you not remember to mention this? Then he goes on to say that, oh, there's a wild cat that lived next door. I heard something. It could have been the cat. I didn't think it was a person, but now I don't know because, you know, his wife and son have now been killed. And he said, I'm just throwing things out there. It's like, I'll say, what do you mean a wild cat? It sounds like he's just trying to find anything to say that this was an intruder. This was somebody outside of the home. The things that he's throwing out there either make no sense or he definitely would have mentioned much sooner. Alec then goes on to tell Special Agent Owen that on his way to his mother's house, he spoke to his brother, John, his son, Buster, and his best friend, Chris Wilson. I don't know about you, but if I wanted to give myself a solid alibi after I had committed a crime, I would call as many people as I could to let them know, oh yeah, I'm going to my mother's house. You called these three people at nine o'clock at night for what? What did you talk about? What, what did you talk about? Now, we don't know how often he spoke to these people, so this could have been normal, but I do find it interesting. So that way, if they were all ever questioned about where Alec was that night or if they have any knowledge of where he was, all three of them are gonna say, oh, well, he called me on the way to his mother's house. So that's where he was. Agent Owen then asks about the guns on the property and Alec revealed that Paul and Buster both owned semi-automatic rifles, which was the same type of gun used to kill Maggie. But Paul's rifle went missing in 2017 and they never found it. Alec just decided to buy him a new one. But after Paul and Maggie were killed, only one semi-automatic rifle was found on the property that day. So where was Paul's replacement gun? Where was the one that was bought for him after he lost his first one? Nobody knows. And the murder weapon has also never been found. Is it possible that they're the same gun? We don't know. Just a few hours after this interview, Alec found out that his father, Randolph Murdoch III, had passed away and he, Paul, and Maggie were all buried that weekend. Now, I understand Randolph Murdoch's death was expected because he had been sick for a while, but it was said that he was getting a little bit better and that his condition was improving. So it was really unfortunate and really sad that all three of them had passed away within the same week. Just two weeks later, SLED announced that they were reopening an investigation from 2015 surrounding the death of a 19-year-old boy named Stephen Smith. They decided to open this case back up because of evidence they found while investigating Paul and Maggie's murders, but this evidence has not yet been made public. It must have been a pretty strong connection for them to open up a case that was six years old. So let's talk about the life and death of Stephen Nicholas Smith. He was born on January 29th, 1996 in Hampton, South Carolina. His parents' names were Fred and Sandy, and he had three brothers and two sisters. One of his sisters was actually his twin, and her name was Stephanie. But Stephen did lose one of his brothers at a young age. Stephen was described as being outgoing, he was witty, very funny, and had a lot of ambition. Stephen was also very fearless because he was openly gay and was not afraid to be himself. Now, 
know it's very hard to be openly gay in the rural South, especially a place like Hampton County, because it's a very conservative area and a lot of people didn't agree with homosexuality. But Stephen didn't let this stop him from living in his truth and being who he was. Stephen had graduated from Wade Hampton High School, just like Mallory, and he was currently attending Orangeburg Calhoun Technical College, otherwise known as OC Tech, before he passed away. He was studying to become a registered nurse, and this really shows how caring and selfless he was, that he wanted his life's work to be taking care of people. Stephen also had aspirations of becoming a doctor, but unfortunately, he would never get to live out these dreams. On July 8th, 2015, a little before 4 a.m., a 911 call was placed by a man headed to work early that morning, and he said that he found somebody laying out in the middle of Sandy Run Road. Law enforcement arrived at the scene, and they found 19-year-old Stephen Smith lying dead in the middle of the road. At first glance, they noticed a large gash on the right side of his head that went down across his face to the bridge of his nose. His shoes were tied loosely and were still on. His clothes were intact with no rips or tears and his phone was still in his pocket. His body was found right in the middle of the road. So these are very important details that I want you to keep in mind. Steven's car was found three miles from where he was lying in the road and the gas cap was off. His wallet was also found to still be in the car. But what responding officers noticed that they didn't see was any vehicle debris or glass in the road. They also didn't see tire marks to indicate that whoever had hit him had slammed on the brakes or skid off the road. Officers determined that there were no injuries on Stephen that were consistent with him being struck by a vehicle. In fact, his injuries were more consistent with being hit by a linear object across the face, such as a baseball bat or a crowbar. After going over all of this evidence, Police concluded that they saw nothing that indicated Stephen had been struck by a vehicle. A medical examiner determined that his cause of death was due to blunt force trauma to the head and the manner of death was homicide. By the time Stephen had been found, his family didn't know. They didn't know where he was at all. He had been missing at that point for a couple days, according to his mother. But when Stephen's family was summoned to the sheriff's department, they were told that Stephen's body was found and that he had been killed by a gunshot wound to the head. Later that same day, Stephen's manner of death was changed from a homicide to a hit and run. People were a bit confused by this, especially Stephen's family, because they had just been told that he had been killed. And now they're being told, oh, never mind, it was a hit and run. So it seemed a bit off to them. This conclusion also seemed very off to Highway Patrol Officer Michael Duncan. He was a part of the initial investigation of Stephen's death, and he could not believe that they changed the manner of death so abruptly, especially when there was no evidence suggesting that it was a hit and run. And he just felt like something was off. So he decided to go to the mortuary where Stephen's body was being held and have a second look just to make sure he didn't miss anything. But he stood firm that he found no injuries on his body other than the head wound. And he did not think that this injury was consistent with a hit and run. When I told you to keep those details in mind, Stephen's body was found right in the middle of the road. If he had been hit by a car, he would have been thrown off to the side of the road. 
think about it. If he was walking in the middle of the road, which his sister came out and said he never did, he would have been thrown to the side of the road. And if he had been walking on the side of the road in the first place, he wouldn't have been hit in the middle of the road unless the car was coming from the woods or something. It doesn't make any sense. There was also no glass or anything in the road to suggest that he had been hit by a vehicle hard enough to be killed. There would have been some sort of glass, a side view mirror. There would have been anything to indicate that, but there wasn't. As Officer Duncan continued to investigate Stephen's death further as a homicide instead of a hit and run, he started receiving some pretty interesting phone calls. And these phone calls were from someone that he didn't know. And they were asking him why he was in Hampton. What did he need over here? And it made him very uncomfortable. So much so that he felt like he was being followed every time he went to Hampton. And he was definitely watching his back, looking over his shoulder, making sure nobody would follow him out of Hampton and find out where he lived. It's almost like somebody did not like the fact that he was challenging the investigation into Stephen's death and wanted to almost scare him out of it. But Officer Duncan didn't let this stop him. He really wanted to bring justice to Stephen and his family. So he continued the investigation. He ended up finding and coming in contact with Stephen Smith's boyfriend. I don't believe he's been named, but he was said to be the last person to speak with Stephen right before he died. And he decides to tell Officer Duncan what they talked about. Stephen's boyfriend said he was on the phone with him the night he died and he heard cars in the background. So he decided to ask Stephen if he was walking, to which he replied no then the call dropped so they started texting instead and Stephen texted his boyfriend saying that he felt like he was being followed and harassed by some guys in a pickup truck but that he was 30 to 40 minutes away this was the last text that Stephen had sent to him and he never heard from him again. His boyfriend believes that Stephen sent this text around 3.37 a.m. So Officer Duncan starting to make some headway, finding out that there was somebody that may have been following Stephen, which continues to support his theory that this was a homicide and not a hit and run. In the days following Stephen's death, as well as the investigation into his death, his father, Fred, received a very unexpected phone call. And this phone call came from none other than Randy Murdoch, Alec Murdoch's brother. Fred thinks this is a little strange. He's like, why is Randy Murdoch calling me? You know, he's a very prominent big time lawyer. What is he calling me for? So Fred answers the phone and Randy Murdoch simply asks him if his family needed a lawyer to represent them in the death investigation of Stephen. Now this was very odd. As I said, Randy was a big time lawyer. I mean, he was a Murdoch. The Murdochs were the law in that town. They didn't need to look for work. People went to them because they were so huge. So why were they calling Fred? It just didn't make any sense. But Fred kind of pushed it away Way, kept it out of his mind and just kept it moving. Officer Michael Duncan continues to interview some people that knew Stephen, and he does this between the months of August and September of 2015. As the interviews are being conducted, there is one name that was consistently brought up, and that name was none other than Buster Murdoch. So this call that came from Randy Murdoch started to not seem so random. And people were theorizing that Buster killed Steven. 
As they continue their interviews, they start to find out the connection between the Murdochs and Stephen. And they found that Buster and Stephen may have had a romantic relationship. Now this hasn't been proven, but they did attend the same high school together. So it was possible that they could have crossed paths at some point. Now this is what police theorize based on what was revealed in the interviews they conducted. Between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. on the night of July 8th, 2015, Buster and his friends were riding around in a pickup truck and Stephen was driving down Sandy Run Road when his car ran out of gas. So he decides to get out and begin walking. Buster and his friends noticed Stephen walking and tried to mess with him. And it was at this point that they believe Stephen may have been hit by a baseball bat by someone in the truck and may have been struck while the truck was still moving and he was subsequently killed by this blow. So, wow. This was the story that was going around. It has not been proven. This is all hearsay. Nobody has yet to be charged in connection with Stephen Smith's death, but people in the community felt like this was very possible. They definitely felt like Buster could have killed Stephen because he didn't want their relationship to get out and hurt his family's reputation. As I said, Hampton was a very conservative area and a lot of people that knew the Murdochs and respected them may not have wanted anything to do with them after they found out that one of their family members was having a secret homosexual relationship. Not to mention the fact that the case was not getting any leads and it was going cold when there was plenty of evidence to assume and conclude that Stephen was in fact murdered. People started to put two and two together and realize it's a bit odd how the cause of death was changed and it seemed like somebody was trying to make it go away, even though the evidence suggested otherwise. But as of 2023, the week I'm recording this actually, and I'm recording this between the days of March 23rd and March 24th, 2023, SLED has now gone back to investigating Stephen's death as a homicide. So finally, there's some sort of headways being made and people are finally starting to believe that Stephen was in fact murdered. Of course, Buster Murdoch has denied any and all allegations that he had anything to do with Stephen's death. It's being investigated now, so it will come out. Whatever that evidence was that led police to open Stephen's death investigation back up, I really can't wait until that is revealed because it had to have been pretty significant for them to reopen this case. So jumping back to June of 2021, after Paul and Maggie have been killed, it's been a few weeks since they have been killed and friends said that Alec was absolutely distraught and that he had even stopped eating and there was no chance of him even thinking about sleeping at the Moselle property. As investigators are looking into the case, they have to look at everybody and they begin digging deep into Alec's past. As you all know, if you're a true crime listener, you know that the spouse is always the first suspect. They're the ones who tend to have the most to gain from their significant other passing away. So they're always questioned and looked at first. So investigators start looking into Alec's past and they found that his family's law firm, PMPED, that he worked for had launched a secret investigation into his finances when they noticed some missing payments and they decided to find out what else he was hiding. Now recall, Alec had the Mallory Beach lawsuit hearing coming up where he was going to have to turn over his financial records. So if there's missing money, there's potentially a paper trail to that. So he didn't want to turn over his records because he knew he was going to be exposed. The day of June 7th, 2021, while Alec was at work before he returned to the Moselle property and rode around with Paul, he was confronted by the CFO of the law firm and her name was Jeannie Seconder. She came to him asking about this missing money. But that same night, Paul and Maggie were murdered. And a lot of people don't think 
this was a coincidence. After Paul and Maggie were murdered, Alec became a victim. I mean, he lost his wife and his son at the same time. People were not worried about the money that he stole for the time being. They wanted to give him time to grieve. So the investigation into his finances was held off. The hearing for Mallory's death lawsuit had been rescheduled. Everyone wanted to give Alec time to grieve the loss of Paul and Maggie. Now, law enforcement wasn't saying much about Paul and Maggie's murder investigation. So a lot of people didn't know that this had been discovered at the time. But because of this, rumors spread like wildfire and people were very in the dark. So they just begin, you know how people do in small towns, they just begin coming up with their own theories because they're not being told anything. But investigators really felt like they had a motive for Alec to commit these murders when they continued to dig into his financial past. And there was a lot there. As they began to dig, they came across a death settlement suit for Gloria Satterfield. Gloria Satterfield was a housekeeper who worked for Alec and Maggie Murdoch for over 20 years. Gloria Harriet Satterfield was born on February 8th, 1961 in Hampton, South Carolina. She had two sons named Brian and Anthony, and Anthony went by Tony, and I will be referring to him as Tony for the remainder of the episode. Gloria was a single mother who worked really hard to raise her sons. They were her whole world, and she was a great mother. When she became the Murdoch family housekeeper and nanny, she made sure that she never missed a day of work. She would even work while she was sick because she wanted to do what she could to support her boys. And she worked for the Murdoch family, as I said, for over 20 years. And she was very close to them, specifically Paul Murdoch. Her and Paul had a very special bond. She had helped raise him from the time he was one. So she was very close to him and she loved Paul and Buster like they were her own kids. But unfortunately, tragedy struck on February 2nd, 2018. Maggie Murdoch called 911 from the Moselle property at 9.24 a.m. And I'm gonna play a little bit of that call for you here. Uh, 4147 Moselle Road. Okay, I'm sorry. What's going on out there? Uh, my housekeeper has fallen and her head is bleeding. I cannot get her up. Okay, you said she's fallen. She's bleeding from the head? Yeah. How old is she? I'm not sure, like 58 maybe. Do you think she fell from standing or not? No. No. Where'd she fall from? Uh, she fell going up the steps, up the brick steps. Okay, so she has better inside. Outside. Okay. How many steps is there? Uh, eight. Okay, is she on the ground or is she up near the top? She's on the ground. She's on the ground. She's on the ground. Is she conscious? Uh, no, not really. Is she awake at all? Yes. Okay. Is she just not, like, responding appropriately, but she is awake? <laughs> Man, she's not, no, she's not responding. Okay, I just, I've already got them on the way. Me asking questions does not slow them down, ma'am. Knowing if she's conscious is one of the things that the medic needs to know. She's responding at all to you. No. Okay, so she's not responsive at all. Well, I mean, she's mumbling. Okay, so she is somewhat conscious. Um, is she breathing okay? Yes. Is she bleeding from anywhere? Yes, her head. Hey, are you guys able to control the bleeding? No. Can you put a rag or anything on it? I, yeah, I got it. Okay, is she bleeding from like her face, the back of the head? I got an ambulance coming. 
Yes, her mammogram was. Where exactly is she bleeding from her head? I'm not sure, at the top of her head. Okay. Oh, can what happened? She, she just fell back down. Can I get off the phone so I can go down there? Can I have your name and phone number? Are you able to that bring the phone down by her? What? Are you on a cell phone where you can walk down there I'm and on talk? A cell phone. No. Okay, can you bring it with you so we can ask her some questions about what kind of pain she's having? Hello? Yeah, can, can you ask the patient what kind of pain she's having? Ma'am, she can't talk. Okay, do you know... She's cracked her head and there's blood on the concrete and she bleeds out of her left ear. Okay, she's bleeding out of her ear? And out of her head, she's cracked her skull. Okay. All right, the other lady said that she had tried to stand up and fell down again? No, she, I was holding her up. And okay. She told me to turn her loose and she was trying to use her arm, but then she fell back over. Okay, do you guys know who she is? Yes, yeah, she works for us. Okay, do you know if she's ever had a stroke or anything before? Ma'am, can you stop asking her questions? I already have them on the way. Me asking questions does not slow them down in any way. These are relevant questions that I have to ask for the ambulance. Now, in case you didn't catch any of that, Maggie Murdoch called 911 to report that her housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield, had fallen at her home and that her head was bleeding and she couldn't get up. Gloria was said to have tripped up eight brick stairs on the outside part of their home and that she was unconscious. Maggie found her and Paul was home at the time. And you can kind of hear the switch off from Maggie's voice to Paul's voice after a long pause. And I thought it was interesting how the switch came after Maggie was asked by the 911 operator to hold the phone up to Gloria to see if she could tell what kind of pain she was in. Maggie had said that she was unconscious, but then she said, well, she's mumbling. So the 911 operator asked to speak with her. And it was at this point that Maggie completely ignored her question and just handed the phone off to Paul. And they both sounded pretty irritated and annoyed with the 911 operator for doing her job. She has to ask those questions. So that way the EMTs have as much information as possible when they arrive on scene. So they can start thinking of ways of how they're going to have to treat Gloria. But Maggie just sounded very annoyed, very irritated. And the 911 operator kind of checked her. She was like, me asking you, she did the same thing to Paul too. She said, me asking questions doesn't have anything to do with them being on the way or not. I just am relaying information to them as they're on the way. Maggie sounds very matter of fact. She doesn't sound extremely concerned or to be panicked or in a rush. She just kind of sounds like she was almost forced to call 911 so it wouldn't look bad. That's the vibe I was getting. Because when the 911 operator asked her if Gloria was conscious, Maggie said, no, not really. Almost like someone asked her, is it cold outside? No, not really. I just feel like those aren't the kind of words you use when you're describing somebody that may be dying right in front of your eyes. Paramedics arrived and Gloria was rushed to the hospital and placed in the intensive care unit for weeks. She suffered a brain bleed, a traumatic brain injury, as well as cracked ribs. While Gloria was in the hospital, she had a few visitors, but noticeably absent from the hospital was Alec Murdoch. He never visited Gloria the entire time she was in the hospital, and Maggie only visited once. 
that she worked for this family for over two decades and helped them raise their kids. And they only came once. Alec didn't come at all. But one person who did come to visit Gloria and visited her regularly was her best friend, Linda. Linda recounts a time when she visited Gloria and claimed that she moved while she laid in the hospital bed. Gloria then tried to take off her breathing mask, but she couldn't. And Linda believes that she was trying to tell her something, but she couldn't speak. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I wouldn't take away my ability to breathe unless I had something very important to say. And to this day, Linda still feels like Gloria was trying to tell her something. But unfortunately, she would never get the chance. Gloria passed away on February 26th, 2018 from her injuries, and she was only 57 years old and her family was absolutely devastated. I mean, her sons were just so shocked that they had lost their mother so suddenly. Gloria's manner of death was ruled to be natural instead of accidental, but no one ever questioned it. Now, of course, small town Hampton County, there were rumors flying about what happened and how Gloria may have fallen down the steps. Now, the story that Maggie gave was that she tripped and fell, but there were rumors that Gloria was pushed and that she may have been pushed by Paul. Paul's girlfriend Morgan came out and said that Gloria had found his drugs while she was cleaning the house and said that she was going to tell his parents. And people believed that Paul became paranoid about getting in trouble for this and decided to push her down the stairs so she wouldn't be able to tell. Now this hasn't been proven, this is all hearsay, but her death is also being investigated, so it will come out at some point. The Murdochs were in attendance at Gloria's funeral and Alec Murdoch this time decided that he had the time to show up. He went up to her sons, Brian and Tony, and apologized to them for his dogs contributing to their mother's death. What he told them was that Gloria tripped over his dogs and said that he felt responsible for this. Now, Maggie didn't mention this in the 911 call, at least not from what I heard, and there were no dogs in the background. And now if you recall from the body cam footage audio that I played for you earlier, where Alec was speaking to detectives the night Paul and Maggie were killed in 2021, you can hear the dogs barking in the background a lot because they were hunting dogs, they were pretty rambunctious, so they were being pretty loud. But there were no dogs heard in the 911 call. So it's a little bit interesting that this was suddenly the story. And Maggie, as far as I heard, never mentioned any dogs being involved. Alec decided that because he felt liable for Gloria's death because they were his dogs, he said that he was going to sue himself on the boy's behalf so that they could get some money and be taken care of. He decided to set them up with a lawyer who could file a wrongful death suit against the Murdoch estate. And he told them to just sit back and wait for the settlement money and that he would take care of everything. But this money never came. Jumping back to when investigators first began investigating Gloria Satterfield's death settlement in 2021 after Paul and Maggie were killed, there were some things that made them look into this settlement. And one of them was the fact that the amount that the family settled for was oddly small. It was only between $500 and $5,000. And given Gloria's age and the way she died, the settlement would have been worth way more than that. In reality, it was worth around $4 million. And the most that the family had won was 5,000. Now, mind you, 
They didn't even get this money, but the lawsuit says that it was settled and that the family received the payment. But in reality, whoever filed this lawsuit decided to withhold this information from the family and pocket the remaining amount, which was well over $3 million. Gloria Satterfield's sons didn't know anything about this. Brian and Tony were completely left in the dark. They didn't even find out how much money they were really owed until they read a newspaper article. The money never came and they never heard from Alec about it again. So you may be asking, how did he do this? How did he get away with this? Well, hold on tight, everybody, because I'm going to explain it. And I really want you to follow me here because the way he did it was just so sneaky. So, so sneaky. He knew exactly what he was doing. And it's pretty shocking. So back in 2015, Alec Murdoch opened up a personal bank account with the Bank of America, and he named this account Forge. Now, Forge was not just the name of Alec's bank account. Forge is also the name of a consulting firm based in Atlanta that handles settlement cases for deaths or personal injuries, just like Gloria Satterfield's. Alec purposely named his personal bank account after this consulting firm to trick people into thinking payments from these death settlements were going to Forge Consulting, when in reality, they were going to his personal bank account under the same name, and he was pocketing this money. So when Alec decides to quote unquote sue himself, which sounds ridiculous, in order to have Gloria Satterfield's sons have some money, he got the lawyers that he set them up with to file a $505,000 insurance claim against his own estate. Then they filed a $3.8 million claim against his estate. And these claims were paid by the insurance company to Alec's bank account called Forge. This was the account that he used to steal settlement money from Gloria Satterfield's sons. Now, I know this sounds confusing, but to sum it all up, Alec named his personal bank account after a real company to trick people into thinking that these insurance claims were going to the consulting firm, when in reality, they were going directly to him. And he was pocketing this money and essentially stealing it from his clients because Brian and Tony never saw this money. It was going straight to Alec. And he set her sons up with the lawyer that he knew and got that lawyer to file these claims purposely so that way it would go to him. I guess Alec knew some crooked lawyers that would do this. This is honestly disgusting. You had this devious plot devised for who even knows how long. I mean, it must have been pretty quickly if he brought the idea up to Gloria's son's at her funeral. Is that what you were thinking about? He wasted no time trying to deceive Brian and Tony and they had just lost their mother. Not to mention their mother worked for you for over 20 years and helped you raise your kids. And when she died, all you were thinking about was how you could steal from her grieving family. It makes you wonder if Gloria's death wasn't an accident at all. And maybe this was planned the whole time because this plot was just way too devious. There's no way he just thought of this in a couple days, but this hasn't been proven. So this was just one incident of Alec stealing from his clients. September 3rd, 2021, Labor Day weekend comes about and SLED is continuing to investigate the deaths of Paul and Maggie Murdoch. Alec's law firm had been doing their investigation as well, but at this point, they felt like they had enough information to officially confront Alec yet again about all this missing money that they couldn't find that was supposed to be for his clients. 
And as I said, they had held off because Paul and Maggie had passed away and they wanted to give him time to grieve. But by this point, they had to confront him. It had been about three months and they had to know what happened to this money. So Alec was confronted by his brother, Randy, who also worked for PMPED, as well as another partner of the law firm. And they pretty much told him they knew about his years of lying and stealing money and they forced him to resign. Now, this is really embarrassing because Alec's family founded this firm in 1910 and he stole from it. The next day, Saturday, September 4th, 2021, Alec decided that he wanted to come clean to his best friend, Chris Wilson, one of the people that he was on the phone with the night Paul and Maggie were murdered. Now, he actually stole from him too. I'm not gonna get into a whole lot of detail about it for the sake of time, but pretty much he convinced his best friend to write a check of over $700,000 and send it directly to him instead of his firm. Then Alec decided to give the check back to Chris, but $100,000 was missing from this original amount. And Chris had to come out of his own pocket to cover it. So he stole from his best friend too. But Alec decided that he wanted to come clean about stealing. He had to get it off his chest. And he decided to tell Chris that he had been stealing from his law firm and his clients for years. But he also revealed to him that he had been addicted to painkillers for over 20 years. Now, Chris was just absolutely shocked. He couldn't believe that Alec was telling him this. He had no idea. I think he started to suspect that there was something fishy going on when he actually stole from him. But to hear that he'd been stealing from his clients, he was just floored. He couldn't believe it. But later that day, things would only get crazier. When Alec called 911 at around 1.34 p.m. to report that he had been shot. I'm gonna play that call for you here. Oh, no, I'm Salkahatchee Road. Okay, what's the address on Salkahatchee Road? I'm by the church. Uh, what church? Are you? What church are you talking about? Uh, I don't know the name of it with the red roof. Okay, what end of Salkahatchee Road? Because I don't know what you're talking about. Um, at the Hampton County side. Okay, what's going on? I stopped, I got a flat tire, mm -hmm. and I stopped, and somebody stopped to help me, and when I turned my back, they tried to shoot me. Oh, okay, were you shot? Yes, but okay. I mean, I'm okay. You shot where? Where were you shot at? Huh? Did they actually shoot you, or they tried to shoot you? They shot me, but... Uh, Okay, wait, you need EMS? Uh, well, I mean, yes, I, I can't drive. Okay. And I'm bleeding a lot. Where, where part of your body? Uh, I'm not sure, somewhere on my head. Your head? So Alec called 911 and told the 911 operator that he had been shot in the head when he was stopped after getting a flat tire on the side of the road. He said that somebody stopped to help him and when they did so, they shot him in the head. He was on his way to Charleston, South Carolina, driving Maggie's car. Now recall, at this point, Maggie is deceased and has been so for about three months. Alec described the person who shot him as being a white man who was much younger than him with really short hair. He was airlifted to Savannah Hospital in Georgia where he suffered a small brain bleed and a fractured skull. But it was said that the head injury was superficial, meaning it was only surface deep and there was no serious damage. The hospital also found drugs 
in his system. People that lived in Hampton thought that somebody was definitely targeting the Murdoch family. Paul and Maggie had been killed three months prior and now Alec is being shot in the head after getting a flat tire on the side of the road. But those close to Alec were a little bit suspicious of him. They thought it was odd that he was taking the road that he said on the 911 call, I believe it was Sockahatchee Road. They thought it was odd that he was taking this road to go to Charleston because this was not the road that locals usually took when they went there. As I said earlier, Charleston was only an hour and a half away from Hampton and most people didn't use this road. This was definitely the road less traveled. So people already thought it was odd that he was on this road in the first place. The following day on Sunday, September 5th, 2021, Alec released a statement to the public through his lawyers saying that he had been having a rough time dealing with the deaths of his wife and son. And he admitted for the first time to the public that he was addicted to painkillers and said that he was going to rehab. Just a week later, while he was in rehab, he confessed to faking the whole thing. That's right, this was completely fake. He told police he hired a man named Curtis Edward Smith to shoot him. He was trying to get himself killed so his son Buster could get his $10 million life insurance policy. And if it had come out that Alec killed himself, Buster might not get the money. So he wanted to make it look like somebody else did it. But that honestly pisses me the hell off. Everything was always about money when it came to this family. Buster doesn't need any more money. The Murdochs have so much money. He didn't need any more of that. He needed his father. He had already lost his mother and his brother. He needed a dad. I don't know why this family thinks that that just is gonna fix everything. I don't get it. On September 16th, 2021, Alec Murdoch was taken from the rehab that he was in and arrested for filing a false police report and conspiracy to commit insurance fraud. Curtis Edward Smith, the man that Alec named as the person he hired to shoot him in the head, was also arrested and charged with insurance fraud. Now, Curtis Edward Smith was known as Cousin Eddie and he was said to be Alec's drug dealer. They were fairly close according to him and he was pretty upset that Alec told the story this way because he had a very different account of what happened. According to Eddie, he said that Alec called him while he was on the side of the road and asked if he could come help him. He agreed and he went to help his friend, but he said that when he got there, Alec was very upset and pulled out a gun. Eddie tried to wrestle the gun from him, but it went off and the bullet grazed Alec on the side of the head. After this, Eddie said, Alec just got in the car and drove away. I wanna know what you guys think, but personally, I believe Eddie, because if he was hired to shoot Alec, I don't think he would've missed. If you're hiring somebody to kill you, you're not gonna move, you're not, I mean, unless you get scared. I feel like Alec's injuries were much more consistent with a scuffle or an accident. Remember I said his head wounds were superficial. So it appears to be more consistent with an accident that had taken place during a scuffle as opposed to a deliberate shooting. Alec had a bond hearing the day he was arrested and he was now a prisoner in the same courtroom that he had tried cases in. So it was very ironic. Of course, he was given bail and his bond was set at $20,000, which he posted and he was taken back to rehab. After Alec admitted to lying, 
people really started to look at him differently. And this made people think that maybe he could have had something to do with Paul and Maggie's murders. I mean, why else would he have conducted such an elaborate scheme? Why were you trying to kill yourself? Alec came out and said that he was trying to kill himself because he couldn't deal with the deaths of his wife and son. But for all we know, he could have been just trying to find an easy way out so he wouldn't have to face any consequences. On October 14th, 2021, Alec was released from a Florida rehab facility. But as soon as he left, police were waiting for him in the parking lot and he was arrested once again and taken back to South Carolina. This time, he was charged with misappropriation of settlement funds in the death of none other than Gloria Satterfield. Now, Alec's crimes are starting to catch up with him, his financial crimes that up to this point, the public didn't really know about. Sled had been investigating on the down low, but now they're starting to come about. They finally had enough evidence to formally charge him. Just five days later, on October 19th, 2021, Alec appeared in court for his bond hearing and Gloria Satterfield's sons, Brian and Tony, were in attendance. Prosecutor Creighton Waters told the judge they believed that Alec had committed many more financial crimes and that they were just getting started. Sled investigator Special Agent Turner decided to address the court as well. And he said that they were not only investigating the misappropriation of settlement funds in the interest of Gloria Satterfield, but they were also investigating her actual death as well as some of Alec's other financial crimes. In a shocking turn of events, Alec was denied bond and forced to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. For once, he wasn't getting special treatment. He was gonna have to sit in jail pending further investigation into his mounting crimes. So he was now a ward of the state. He could not leave. Things just began unraveling more and more by the day. People were beginning to hear about many, many more of his financial crimes, not including the ones that we talked about in this episode, like many, 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 many more. On December 13th, 2021, Alec had his third bond hearing and he was indicted on 27 counts of financial misconduct. 27. The judge set his bond at $7 million. When I read that, I was like, damn, that's a lot of money. This was not just a random number. This was said to be the amount of money Alec had stolen from his clients in total and he wasn't able to make bail and he did in fact remain in jail really all that money you stole from your clients but you couldn't even pay your bail it just goes to show like what was the point what was even the point i'm now assuming that he was probably using that money to fund his lifestyle as well as his drug habit which had gotten much worse now it was around this time that the pmped law firm officially removed the murdoch name from its title as i said at the very beginning of this long episode the m stood for murdoch but now it was gone. Over a hundred years of honor completely down the drain. Richard Murdoch Sr. started the firm, but now their name was no longer associated with it. In fact, their name was seen as a disgrace. Up to this point, Alec Murdoch was now facing over 75 counts of financial misconduct. More and more just kept coming out by the day. In June of 2022, SLED investigators announced that Gloria Satterfield's body was going to be exhumed so they could continue investigating the circumstances surrounding her death. But this has yet to happen. As far as I know, they're still investigating her death, but they have not exhumed her body as of March 2023. And on July 14th, 2022, in an extremely, extremely shocking turn of events, Alec was officially indicted for the murders of Paul and Maggie Murdoch. 
he pled not guilty. This by far was something that I don't think anybody expected. I mean, people wondered, people questioned, but for him to be formally charged with the death of his wife and son was taking this entire case, this entire saga to a whole different level. So I'm actually going to end the episode here and I will be back next week with an episode on the trial because it is very extensive. It's a lot and I definitely think it needs two episodes. So stay tuned for part two of A Dynasty Crumbles and I hope to see you in the water soon.